Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? This is Sean and Chris from the Childhood Remastered Podcast, where we look back on the cartoons, TV shows, and movies of our youth to see if they're still worth a damn. Or not. Or not, which is far too often the case. Now get ready, because you're about to listen to History Goes Bump. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 214th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are going to bring you the legends of the Balkans. We're going to be joined shortly by our listener, Chris Klimovitz, who has joined us on a previous episode. And he has been living over in Albania, and he's going to share with us some of the legends that he's heard while he's been there. There's lots of superstitions, and there's a lot more than just vampires over there. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you guys. Denise, we're glad to have you back here. Well, thank you. We want to thank the guys over at Childhood Remastered for the bumper at the beginning of uh, this episode. Yes, we do. Thanks so much. That'll take you back to your childhood when it comes to cartoons. And make sure you check out the Dirty Bits podcast. I've been enjoying binging on that one. It brings a little bit of the seedy side of history, things that you definitely were not told about in history class, which you know we love here because that's the reason why we look at the things that go bump, because that's stuff you don't hear about either. This does have an explicit warning on it because every so often the F-bomb flies, but other than that, it's not uh, necessarily over the top when it comes to things that you might think are a little bit uh, risque and that kind of thing. I would say it's a PG-13 rating. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Jamie, who has J-A-I at the beginning. Hey, Jamie. Beth. Hi, Beth. Allison with two L's. Hey, Allison with two L's. Liz. Hey, Liz. Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Michael. Hi, Michael. And Michael is the host of Deadhead Daddy's Creepy Things podcast. So check that out. He's been posting a lot of interesting daily horror histories in the Spooktacular crew. Eam, I hope that's right. It's E-A-M. Hello, Eam. Teresa with no H. Hey, Teresa with no H. Laura. Hi, Laura. Samuel. Hey, Samuel. Mukiri, and I hope I said that right. Hello, Mukiri. Naomi. Hi, Naomi. Peggy. Hey, Peggy. And Emily, who is the host of the Story Behind podcast. Hello, Emily. Another podcast that you guys should be checking out. It's the extraordinary history behind some everyday type things like mustaches, Denise. Yes, because everybody needs to know the history of the mustache. The story behind Uncle Sam, surfer lingo, I mean, cowabunga. A lot of fun stuff that she covers over there. And now for this moment in oddity. We know sinkholes in Florida. Every so often, a piece of the earth just opens up here and swallows houses. 
and not long ago, a whole resort high-rise fell into a sinkhole about five miles from our house. But Florida is not the only state plagued with these mysterious sinkholes. On the south side of Lake Michigan in Indiana, one can find the Wandering Dune that rises over 100 feet. The dune is technically known as Mount Baldy, and tourists flock to it for the wonderful view of the Chicago skyline. Years of tourists treading over the grass that held the sand in place had trampled that grass and it no longer kept the dune from traveling. Quickly, the sand started moving and it was headed for the park's parking lot. The park service closed the dune and replanted grass. Before the grass could firmly root, a six-year-old boy was walking on a part of the dune when he completely disappeared in 2013. It was quickly surmised that the dune had somehow swallowed the boy. It took three hours to locate and rescue the boy alive. Scientists were fascinated and decided to study what had happened because this was no ordinary sinkhole. Most sinkholes have some kind of water at their base that washes away that base, causing the dirt to cave. This sinkhole had no water. Geologists tried everything to figure out what caused the phenomenon and were shocked when two more sinkholes opened up. To this date, in 2017, the bizarre sinkholes remain a mystery, and that certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of July, on the 28th in 1932, the bonus march eviction in Washington, D.C. occurred. The bonus march was led by General Douglas MacArthur, Major Dwight D. Eisenhower, and Major George S. Patton. Six years after the end of World War I, Congress enacted a bill to benefit the men who had served and survived during the war. But incomprehensibly, the bill made the payout available in 1945. Many of these veterans were understandably upset, but the 1920s were prosperous and they made do. Then, the Great Depression hit and these veterans became desperate and they needed that bonus money. The men organized a march of 15,000 on Washington, D.C. in May of 1932, and they called themselves the Bonus Expeditionary Force. They did more than march. They decided to stay until they were paid, and they built a shantytown out of scrap wood and iron. The House put forward a bill to give the bonus marchers their benefit, but the Senate voted against it. Congress then adjourned, but the marchers stayed. On July 28th, President Herbert Hoover ordered a force of tanks and cavalry under the command of General MacArthur to disperse the marchers and destroy their camp. The veterans were driven out and the shantytown was burned. The veterans would finally get their pay in 1936, nine years early, after Congress overrode a veto by President Franklin Roosevelt. The Balkans historically has been a place of violence and for this reason its borders are very fluid. The main countries that generally are accepted as part of the Balkans are Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Bulgaria, Croatia, Montenegro, Slovenia, Serbia, Kosovo, Romania, Macedonia and parts of Greece, Turkey, Italy and Hungary. This peninsula of land is named for the Balkan Mountains which in Turkish means a chain of wooded mountains. The superstitions and legends of the region are rich. The legends that people are most familiar with from this region are those regarding vampires, but there is so much more here. 
Our listener, Chris Klimovitz, who has been living in Albania, returns to the podcast to share his firsthand accounts of the legends surrounding cemeteries, witches, and ghosts in the Balkans. Hello, is this Chris? That would be me. Hello again. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm better now. Uh, It's been a hectic week, but I'm good. I'm flying back out to the Balkans tomorrow, so uh, I'm glad I'm hearing from you. Long time no see. Yeah, gosh, we haven't talked to you for probably, I think it was about a year ago, we had you on to talk about the Hoyu Basayu Forest, so it's been a while. Yeah, last October, if I remember. Yeah, exactly. And you, uh, when you wrote us, you were like, yeah, it's been great in Albania during the winter, no running water for two (laughs) months, minus 10 degrees. Yeah, it's funny is uh, being an old that you get to talk with all the people around you and they like to share stories. So you get to learn about new things around you that you had no idea, especially uh, the paranormal stuff. Well, I know the Balkans, when you talk to people about it, when it comes to the borders, there's a lot of disagreement about what exactly is included in that. For the people that are there, what do they consider to be the Balkans? What countries does that include? So generally, the Balkans is generally seen as the former Ottoman Europe. So that is the areas of like uh, Romania, the areas of like Bulgaria, Greece, even where I am in Albania, Kosovo, Serbia, Macedonia, Croatia, basically all the Western Balkans, Eastern Balkans. And sometimes you'll see the Republic of Moldova included in that, as well as sliver of Ukraine on the Black Sea and uh, part of European Turkey, where Istanbul is, that's also counted as the Balkans. This is an area that is very rich in folklore and superstition. And I know basically when I think of this area, the only, I guess, legends that come to mind for me are vampires, but I'm sure there's a lot Mm -hmm. more to it. Many, 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 many. Yes. So the vampire, particularly uh, vampires thought to be either Bulgaria or Serbia. Bulgaria and Serbia battle each other over who has the claim to the name vampire and actually the two of them are battling over and with Romania of course are battling over for tourist trade over uh, who has the best vampire site so it's pretty funny in that regard it's good for the local economies but and it brings a lot of tourists in but at the same time it creates that stereotype so out of all of the different legends that you've heard while you've been there what is one that kind of strikes you as something that you weren't expecting So actually where I am here in Albania, which I'll be traveling back to. So I am in the northeast of the country, near the Macedonian border. And it is a very mountainous area. And surprisingly right now, it's actually really, really hot. Usually it's not as hot as it has been. I mean, in the winter, it's extreme cold with negative 10 degree weather, uh, snowstorms. That is more normal, but uh, I'm losing water for a couple months. But where I am, I was really shocked to hear about ghost stories, even possessions witchcraft. Those things really took me by shock um, because Albania is a relatively secular country because of its history, the different influences from different empires over time. The country on paper is traditionally Sunni Muslim with a large minority of Christians and other faiths. But Albania is traditionally very secular. During the dictatorship of the country of the 1940s until the 1980s, the country tried to ban religion under the dictator Enver Hoxha. But what's interesting is that people held on to community legends, regardless of the religious side. And then when religion became legal again after 1992, that all started to merge. And so a lot of these old legends started to mix into different communities. And so where I am in the north of the country, it's a little bit more remote. It's a bit more cut off from the rest of the country because of the infrastructure, the roads, 
and just the general distance. I live head outside of an area called Peshkovi in Beaver County. And where I am, particularly the big legends are on witchcraft. And I was really shocked when I was told, uh, yeah, we have witches here. And I've, I chuckled a bit because every time I looked into Balkans mythology and lore, which is part of my background, you never really get anything about Albania, Kosovo, Macedonia. It's usually about uh, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, etc. So in Albania, where I am, you'll find a story particularly about witches are known for having blue eyes, supposedly. They're usually the loners in the community. It, it, in a way that it crosses over with a lot of other Western lore. The lonely woman who has many animals, she has blue eyes, uh, she'll stay away from the community. I think the most interesting story I've been told. So one of my neighbors was telling me back in 1998 when her husband died. Now, she's an older lady, to get some context. Her husband died in 1998 from a heart attack. Apparently, there were some issues with one of their neighbors who supposedly the village had claimed she was a witch. And so she lived on the bit on the outskirts. Well, for whatever reason, they had issues with the supposed witch. And when he passed away, this old supposed witch was staring outside of her window when the procession was going through uh, the community. Now, in Albania, because of traditional Sunni Muslim uh, customs, there are essentially two different funerals. The men will take the body out if it is uh, a gentleman who passed away, and he will be buried with uh, the men will bury him. And then the women will follow after to mourn. And so where I am, like I said, it's very, very traditional. And so they follow that even if not everyone is uh, particularly religious. Said that when the second procession was coming for the women to follow, apparently this old woman who's, again, supposedly this witch, was still staring at where the funeral was taking place at the graveyard. And it caught the attention of uh, the couple's daughter. So she went over to the house to go confront this woman and found the door open, went upstairs to talk to this woman. This woman, who is supposedly the witch, stares at her and starts muttering and making what is a hex, a curse, towards the daughter and her family. Of course, this young lady runs out scared um, and runs back to her family. Well, some time later, this uh, young lady, she gets married, and she and her new husband are trying to uh, have a child. Well, she miscarriages for the first time. So some time later, they try again. She miscarriages again. And they try a third time. And again, she miscarriages. From what I was told, they went to the local imam to basically get the equivalent of a exorcism done. Supposedly, the whole family was exorcised by this imam. Everything was solved and all cured. The funny thing is that this old lady, she just disappeared right after that. It's like she never even existed. The house was left abandoned. There was nothing there. And that was it. Stories like that. There's other ones where I am. There's a valley near some beautiful old churches. Now, where I am, there's three uh, old Byzantine-era churches going back to the 1200s and 1300s. There used to be a large Christian community, but they have generally left because under, under the dictatorship of Enver Hoxha, religion was banned, and as soon as people could leave, they did. They went over to what is now Macedonia, to, because Macedonia is traditionally a more orthodox country. They left this valley outside the village of Kerchist, and there is supposedly the Valley of Witches and Valley of Ghosts. In northern Albanian, it's uh, Lingat. In southern Albanian, it's Phantasma. So there's this valley of supposed ghosts and witches uh, near the churches. And the churches supposedly, from what I was told by the locals who maintain them, that it is what's protecting the region. 
from these evil spirits, beings, or people, or whatever they are, it's protecting them, everybody. So I guess in a sense, it's like a thank you to them in that regard for keeping us all safe. When they built the churches there, was this already considered to be a valley of the witches and the ghosts, and that's why they put the churches kind of as a border to that? Or were they both just kind of coinciding together? Coincided. Um, It's a good question, like the chicken and the egg, which came first. Mm -hmm. But as far back as everyone talks about it, that's always just been there. People take it very serious. People take it so serious that in many parts of Albania, people like to go on evening walks. And in under the dictatorship, people use that to meet each other and people use it to courtship, you know, basically talk, you know, what was going on, what was the daily events. Well, where I am in the north, it's a bit different where people when, don't really come out at, at night. And when darkness falls, everything is really, really quiet. And I think one of the more eerie things about it is that uh, where I am, power can go out quite regularly. So there's been many a nights where it's just candlelight. And you'll think you'll hear things and you'll hear um, sometimes like cats like to get up on the roof and whatnot. But if you didn't know that, like the first time I was there, it made me jump because the stories I was told. To give you an idea, in Albanian custom, and particularly a lot of the Balkans, the guest is very much welcomed. The guest will always be welcomed in the house. There's actually an old book called the Kanun. And the Kanun means canon. And it goes back maybe thousands of years, if not hundreds of years. And it's basically a code of laws that have been given. And in the north where I am, it's particularly more followed. It's very, again, traditional. And uh, one of the first passages states that the house belongs to guests and God. Traditionally, families will feed you if you come visit them. And they'll serve you a big, coarse meal. And of course, there always has to be bread because it's the Balkans and bread is always available. That in Rocky, which is like, um, think of it like moonshine, um, like a brandy. And it's always served. Well, I've been told by many people, don't go to such and such a house because they may hex you, may they may curse you, because they may be a witch. And it's those little things which really stand out. Another one, where I am, there is a old, old cemetery that I think goes back at least 130, 140 years from what I've seen on the dates on the headstones. And it's really, really cool. But the locals don't go there. They really don't. They stay away as much as possible because that's seen as a cursed place. I was told if you go to the cemetery and you point at a grave by mistake, you should say Bismillah, which is basically asking God to protect you from any type of evil beings. How interesting. So, I, I've never heard that before where it's don't point at a grave or you could be cursed. Why do they think the cemetery's cursed? That's a great question because I've asked and all I've all I've ever heard is that for far back people remember, because again, the cemetery is very, very old, at least 140 years old, I, w- I would surmise from what I've seen, mm-hmm. that the dead roam there. There is very old legend in Albania that kind of plays to this, and I wonder maybe if it has connections with it, I don't know, but there is the legend of Besa, and the Besa means fidelity, basically. So if you are welcomed in someone's house under the Kanun, you are granted protection, i.e. Besa. The family that will take you in will fight for you to the death. There is also fidelity and basic can also deal with romance and love. The story goes is that a young man had died in a battle many, many, many centuries ago. His mother grieved for him and went to his grave and would say, you promised you would protect your family. You're the only man in the house. You know, your father has passed and all we had was you. You promised to protect your sister and I. You remember, Besa, fidelity. And so the story goes is that 
he came back from the grave on his horse in a spectral white with his sword in his hand to come back to protect that family. That's how strong, even from the grave, if you claim someone as your besa in Albanian culture, that is to the death. Wow. And even after. <laughs> wow, that's very interesting. I find it fascinating when you're talking about the exorcisms with Islam, because usually when we talk about exorcisms, we always directly think Catholicism. So it's interesting that they have right. the same thing with the Islamic faith and that they talk about possessions when you were saying some of the things that you found really fascinating to you that you hadn't thought would be there. When you said possessions, I thought the same thing. I was like, wow, I would have never thought in Albania that that would be something that they would be worried about. Neither did I. And it actually reminds me of, you had the one episode about the jinn. Where I am, there are also jinn, supposedly, because, it, like I said, Albania until 1912 was part of the Ottoman Empire for roughly 530-some years, give or take. Where I am, yeah, there is claims that jinn or even, actually where I am in my village, the devil himself, Shatan in Albanian, had possessed a young man. So there was a young man who left the mosque. He did not say Bismillah when he left. He, so when you leave the mosque, you're supposed to have your left foot out first and then your right foot follow over the gate. When he didn't uh, ask God for protection, when on the way home, something struck him and he fell. And when he awoke, he was possessed by Satan, the devil. And it had to take an exorcism to cure him of the devil. I had no idea about this kind of stuff. It's funny, during the harvest season, particularly in the winters, people will really talk about this. They'll sit with dinner with you and at the table, and they'll tell you about stories and legends of ghosts, witchcraft, weird things that happened. I was told by, particularly, that's why I like hanging out with the older people in my communities, because they have the best stories. Uh, under the dictatorship, there was an old factory for flour cereal production called Grumbalimi. This factory was very, very famous in the Deber area. The one lady I was speaking with, she was telling me how her husband, he was the manager there, he had taken out cereal bags. I mean, they were pretty heavy, apparently, to the fields behind the old factory. And these fields in this factory are now very, very abandoned. And uh, they definitely look at, I mean, it would make for a great ghost story if you were looking at them. So in Albanian tradition, uh, wedding season is actually going on actually right around now. Uh, May through October is traditionally wedding season. So and in the evenings, parties can go on for all night. And even in Romania and a lot of the Balkans, you can when you go to a wedding, you'll go there expecting to eat a lot, dance a lot, and party all night long until maybe 5 a.m. in the morning. They take it very seriously. One evening, because it was summer, he thought that he heard a wedding, which is normal. I mean, it's summertime. Weddings happen. It's wedding season. Well, he was looking around, and he didn't see anyone. But in the distance, he saw flames coming from the mountainside and from the hillside and where the trees are. And he thought, okay, well, you know, maybe it's just they're coming this way. So they start getting louder and louder and louder. And he starts feeling a chill go through him. And he looks over again. The flames are closer, and he feels this cold pass right through him. And he stands there. And he basically feels like paralyzed. It had to be one of his colleagues who came over and snapped him out of it. So he went home and he went to his wife and he just looked like dazed and, you know, out of it more than normal. He's usually a very jovial man, I was told, um, well-loved in the community. She was able to snap him out of it by, you know, giving him food and being there with him. And finally, he told her about what happened. And she's glad she snapped him out of it because there's the tradition that, if you uh, are possessed and you don't get these spirits out of you quick enough, you will die yourself. 
you'll become one of them. Interesting. I've never heard that either. So she was able to snap him out of it just basically by feeding him food that he was used to and talking to him. Exactly. Give him comfort, you know, Uh exactly. Being there and showing love because that's a big thing. You know, Albanians are very loving people and very welcoming people. So for that is something to uh, break that curse. This was like a, a, was it a vision that he saw that there was this fire and then he felt the cold going through him or because there obviously was not really a fire there. Right. And I, maybe I should go back and say they, cause he heard music cause he, that's what he thought was a wedding. And mm-hmm. it was traditional Albania. They have these very old drums and you'll have someone from either the Roma, i.e. the gypsy community or an Egyptian community who generally play the drums and bring in the bride, the groom, the family. There'll be like a goat uh, for sacrifice that will come with that. There's a big procession. That's what he thought it was because he heard the music and, you know, saw the fire. Because in the old days, they did not have fireworks. They would carry fire with them. This was strange for him because, again, this was only a few decades ago. These are old traditions that, for the most part, aren't really as followed as much. That's why it stood out. And I've been going around collecting these stories. It it makes you wonder if it was something residual, since it obviously was from the past, but how interesting, if he was feeling this cold burst, you'd assume that something passed through him that seemed to be a spirit, and that they believed if something passed through you that it, it could actually possess you, whereas you don't really hear that too much especially in America, they might say, I felt this rush go through me, but you don't hear the person say, and then I felt like there was a spirit in me. But this is a really recent story you're talking about as well. So it's not like years ago. Right, exactly. There's even one I've been told, most of these stories generally go back as late as the 1950s. So these stories really have stayed despite uh, trying to ban religion. Hoja was unable to break that belief in like spiritualism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very much it stuck. There's another story I know of where now these, again, these are older ladies now, but they were telling me about when they were young girls, how they would play out in the field near what was then the Yugoslav, now Macedonian border. And there was these old trees there and they were playing like the equivalent of a hide and seek. They couldn't find the one girl who went out to hide. And so they brought in some of the community to help search, like a search party. Well, they found her miles away up in a tree. They don't know how she got that far distance because she would have had to go through the mountainside. They found her. Basically, they had to claw her out of the tree because she was stuck up at this gnarled tree and she wouldn't get down. Whether that was just because of being the trauma of being lost or, or what, but apparently she, when asked what led her there, she wouldn't talk about it. She just said that she felt kind of like uh, compelled. Something compelled her to go there and she couldn't explain it. She would never talk about it again until her, until her death. It's stories like that that fascinate me. There's a a guy who talks about, and I can't remember what his name is, but he writes about disappearances that happen in the national parks here. And that sounds so similar to a story about a toddler that he said ended up on this mountaintop. And they had no idea how this toddler got up there, especially in the amount of time that he would have had to have covered the ground. And it just reminds me of that, that she covered that kind of ground and then was able to climb up into a tree like that. So it does make you wonder... something seems to have carried her there rather than herself. And it obviously was terrifying enough to her that she doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. I don't have a good one on that one. I mean, some of them I can think, well, it was A or B, C, you know, and rule out. But some of these, I don't have good answers. And that's, yeah, yeah, I can't put my finger on where, I don't know. Sometimes 
you'll feel like there is something there. You'll feel like there's something unique to that area. It just has its own character. One of the most interesting ones, and I even did this when I'm in the United States. Here, you know, I've been here for a few weeks and visiting my family. It's funny, I've noticed how many things, like these traditions, I've brought home with me. And one of them is a tradition, you don't walk uh, between two people. So for example, if you're on the sidewalk talking to a friend, a relative, whoever, and someone were to cross in between you two, that is seen as bad luck. Hmm. That is seen as you're hexing them. That's seen as you dislike those people. And so you're supposed to cross around them, go past around them. And I would try to do that here even. It's just come a subconscious thing. You try to avoid, you don't want to curse somebody. You know, you don't want to break that friendship, that fidelity. Let's see, some other interesting stories I know of. So around Albania, you'll hear ghost stories from particularly old castles. There's a very famous castle called Rozafa. Rozafa is up in the city of Skoder. And Skoder is like the, uh, I guess you would say it's like the cultural capital of Albania. Okay. Um, to give you an idea, Skoder is near the border with Montenegro. It's going towards the Adriatic Sea on a very, very famous lake called Lake Skoder. And this lake goes back, used by the Romans. It was used by the Byzantines, the Ottomans. It was seen many, many conflicts over time. And uh, under the Ottomans, it was known as Scutori. It has gone through many changes of hands. Uh, the Montenegrin forces went through there. World War One, World War II saw battles. And during the dictatorship of Enver Hoxha, he had uh, persecuted priests, Catholic priests, were put to their deaths there. And he also tried to break the northern traditions as much as he could. And that included trying to destroy part of the ports. Well, he kept the castles, thankfully. <laughs> he, he was nice enough to do that. The Rosafa Castle is famous for a story of when the castle was being built, for it to stand, it needed a blood sacrifice. The prince of the area, he had sealed up his wife into the castle walls because he needed a blood sacrifice. And the story goes is how they left enough brick open for her to be able to look out, for her one hand to reach out and one leg to reach out and one breast to be seen for her baby so they could feed. And so to this very day, there's the stories of uh, Rosafa Castle um, being protected by this princess and being guarded and how it will always stand as long as the walls stand. There's also the very famous stories of Mount Tamari, which is in central Albania near the very famous city of Berat. And Berat goes back to the old Roman Empire. And you can actually walk on old cobblestone roads from the Roman Empire. Oh, neat. And there's, it's, it's gorgeous. I, I highly recommend it, especially in the autumn, because that's when the leaves are changing. There's a lot of festivals that occur. You'll have uh, these beautiful Orthodox churches that will uh, light up and have festivals and whatnot. But there is a Tomori Mountain, which is the largest in all of Albania. There are many, many different stories of ghosts there, different disappearances around the area. It's also seen as a mountain of protection for the community. So it has, a, you know, a unique dual character to it. You know, you don't mess with the mountain because the mountain's there to protect you. If you are wrong to the mountain, around, uh, if you're wrong to the community, then it will bring you problems. You'll find a lot of these old castles throughout uh, the region near uh, the city of Permet, which is near the Greek border. There's a small community called Kelsur, and Kelsur has this old uh, castle that was uh, owned by a governor who, under the Ottoman Empire, fought them uh, for autonomy for the Albanian people. That is supposedly has hauntings there. You'll find this throughout the region. Albania is also very famous for, uh, actually, is where Pompey. He defeated, for the first time, Julius Caesar, 
before Julius Caesar uh, got revenge on him uh, at the port city of Duras, which is in Albania. You have many different stories and legends, and a lot of times I think it's interesting how the legends and lore and history all get wrapped up into one, and it's hard to dissect them. And from that, of course, you get your ghost stories, your stories about witches. And I should probably go back and mention, witches in Albanian, Strig is how you say it. But it's taken very, very seriously, especially where I am in more of the rural communities. What's interesting is that they feel so comfortable talking to you about it because, I mean, I know you've been there for a while and you teach and everything, but do they ever kind of think of you as an outsider? And so sometimes you would think they'd be a little bit more protective about sharing that with somebody who seems like they'd be kind of on the outside of their culture. I'd say it depends. So with each person, generally, most people are quite welcoming of me. I'm always to them their friend, and I've gotten better with my Albanians, communicate with them more. And I also know a lot of the older ladies, and a lot of my students, they introduce me to their families. So I've gotten to know my fam- different community members because of that. I mean, most of them are quite open to telling me because they want people to know about what's going on. They want people to know about their community. Where I am, there aren't a lot of tourists. There aren't a lot of foreigners who come. So I am... In a way, people will look at me, and I've been called CIA, um, because people (laughs) suspect that, uh, oh, yeah, because under the dictatorship, they were told that Americans were still having slaves until really 1970s, 1980s, that uh, we were trying, yeah, no, seriously, that we were, we eat babies, (laughs) terrible things were told. Uh, Yeah, people were really shocked. So in a sense, they, I'm their American, so they... I don't know if they just want to tell me to tell me or if it's just out of, you know, they've really gotten to know me now or what. But, yeah, they will really open up. If you ask people about stories and legends, I'm sure many of your small communities, they all have them. They all do. You just got to find the right people to talk about it. I think it's a great compliment to you that they obviously feel comfortable with you telling you that kind of stuff and that you also would be receptive of it because even in America, sometimes if you're going to be talking about ghosts and witches and vampires and things, you kind of feel people out before you start saying things like I don't normally go up to people and say, oh, yeah, I have this podcast about haunted history because, you know, some people might look at you a little cross-eyed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know what I was thinking, and it's the old, uh, it comes in in Judaism, and you find it in some of the Gnostic texts. It's with the story of Lilith. I don't know how much you've heard, but I was thinking about this earlier, because you'll find with the witches' stories how many of the witches attacked young young children. I don't know if you've ever seen in Mediterranean culture, they will usually have, a lot of people call it the evil eye, but it's really called the envy eye, and it's their blue eyes, because blue eyes, like I said earlier, are believed to be the hallmark of a witch. A lot of people wear or have these beautiful uh, ceramic or glass eyes, you know, inside their houses, their homes or businesses, or even on their wrists. They'll have like small ones, necklaces, and is to protect them from witchcraft, protect them from envy. I've wondered if some of it comes from, it's mixed in with the Islamic tradition, mixed in with Christian and Jewish tradition because of the story of Lilith, because you'll hear a lot of stories about witches in some communities in Albania that will supposedly drink the blood of newborns and will snatch them away for their pots and cook them and to bring damage upon uh, farmland. I've just wondered if um, there's been some historical, cultural, religious parallel or that just got down through this over time with war. 
That is really fascinating to hear you say that. We did get evil eyes when we went to Turkey and were visiting there and a little bit of synchronicity. Rachel, who is one of our spectacular crew members, had gone to a housewarming for a friend of hers. And that's what she picked up at a store somewhere in her town was this evil eye kind of decorative thing that you can hang up in the house. So it was interesting to hear you say that. But I never put those things together where it is like a central blue eye on it and that they equate that to witchcraft. So isn't it interesting that they would say that this evil eye that has this blue in the middle of it could repel something that they use to define what makes you a witch. And Lilith, that is such an interesting piece of mythology. We're actually going to do an episode dedicated to her for October. Awesome. And just, yeah, when you go back into that, tell us a little bit about what the people think of her there when you talk about Lilith in, in the Balkan area. Well, the name doesn't always come up, but generally it's passed through lore and you'll hear it as just as the generalized witch. Sometimes she will disguise herself as a crow, as a raven, because there are a lot of crows and ravens where I am. I think they're cool, but not everyone does. Or even as a rabbit, believe it or not. And you'll find in a lot of areas that used to be part of the Ottoman Empire, there's the fear of the rabbit. You'll find people will not allow rabbits into their homes because it's seen as uh, something that could be done with hexing. Yeah, so people will tell me about, uh, that's usually it's a traditionally a woman, blue eyes, She'll have a familiar of some sort, you know, either a cat, dog, bird of some sort, even a rabbit. For whatever reason, she's angry with you, something. She will curse your family, steal a newborn child, drink the blood of a newborn child. Sometimes it being also called, you'll hear me here, it's sometimes vampire once in a while. It sometimes crosses over to uh, with the whole idea of lingat in the northern dialect is ghost or sure. it could be vampiric ghost. But generally, they're witches. The way to stop the hex besides exorcism is generally what I've been told. Um, it goes back to you have to get the witch to basically take it back or you have to kill the witch. I just wondered how much that goes back to this constant idea of a witch is usually a woman. She's maybe older, the loner. She doesn't maybe go to the mosque, the church, and she's usually the target. So I've wondered if that has to go back and it's just merged over time. It, it, it's kind of like the Reese's peanut butter. You can't separate the chocolate and the peanut butter. So it's hard to separate those stories. And they've all become merged together. Sure. You'd mentioned the cemetery earlier. How do they feel about their burial grounds there? And do they have any kind of special rituals or anything that go with burying somebody? So with the cemetery... Like I said, it's about 140-ish years old. So it goes back to the old Ottoman Empire. And so a lot of the old Ottoman traditions have stayed in place where I am. Where I am is particularly Sunni Muslim, even if it's just more cultural than actually religious. People generally where I am, even like on Ramadan, where you're not supposed to drink alcohol, people where I am generally drink alcohol. I mean, people will take it more just as cultural. So if there's a funeral... You'll have it where generally the men will have the first funeral and they'll take the casket out and the women will follow after as a separate second funeral. And they are the ones who guard the grave for some hours at a time, check on it for some days at a time. But after a while, the grave is usually just left alone. Like with my grandparents' grave, uh, recently my parents, we went out to lay flowers and to visit. Generally, it's not seen as that. It's seen as more of until when Judgment Day comes. The person who has passed will either be with God or shall be, uh, unfortunately, will go to hell, depending on how they lived in life. So it is seen as it's no longer the place for the living to go to. 
where it is tradition, where I am, it's you don't point. You don't point at graves. You just really don't go there because one, I would argue, because there's a lot of stray dogs where I am and stray dogs <laughs> like to hang out. And you, you, I've been attacked by too many dogs. Mm-hmm. So it's just I would avoid it for one reason. That's the one reason. But otherwise, like being the Westerner who likes to check out the graveyards, see the ages and everything, see, learn more about the community. I'm seen as kind of odd because I like to ask, you know, about different family connections and how far they go back. Generally, I found like with some of my students who they took me on a tour there um, last February, back during the severe cold that it was, I was pointing at some of the old graves that go back before independence in 1912. And they started saying, Bismillah, Bismillah. I was like, why are they saying all that? And they're saying, you don't point. Do not point at graves because you are cursing yourself. You're cursing all of us. You're cursing the community because you're welcoming the dead to return. And that's not a good thing. Um, It's seen as a blight on the community. So generally, people avoid cemeteries. And you'll find many cemeteries across the countryside. So many of them are just for, some of them are still used, some are not. So it's, it's different in that regard. It's a different cultural uh, belief system around that. Well, they would think we were weirdos just like you, Chris, because that's one of our favorite things to do when we visit a place is check out the cemeteries and see all the different monuments that are there. And I don't know that I do a lot of pointing, so I might be safe from the pointing (laughs) thing. But yeah, they think we were weird. (laughs) Yeah, almost definitely. It is. They're not used to that. Like I said, where I am, so once in a while I'll get bikers because it's mountainous. You know, we're like 2,000 feet above sea level. So you'll get a lot of mountain bikers from Germany or parts of Central Europe, Spain, Italy who come. But they're not used to having people who like to settle down and live and teach there and work there. If you were to come and you were to point, you would seen as something offensive. And I had no idea about any of this. This is stuff that you're not taught when you're going through training or uh, getting ready to go there. It doesn't matter how many books you read, you won't find this stuff out until you're actually there. So have you had anything that you could not explain happen to you while you've been there? Yeah, I, I've had one. It was interesting. Actually, it was quite recent before I left for home. Now spring is, well, spring now summer, there's a lot of frogs that appear. And so at first I thought I heard frogs chirping because I live near some ponds and, you know, expect frogs. Well, I was sitting out on the porch at night, and I guess maybe 10, 30, 11-ish, and where I am, there's a lot of beautiful stars. I am an astronomer. Right? You know, I'd like to be an amateur astronomer on the side. And I started hearing a whistling, uh, like a person's whistling. And I thought, okay, well, maybe it's just somebody walking by the house. It's a, I live on a dirt road, and I thought, you know, it's just somebody walking by. It's not the first time. Well, I went to check, and there's no one out there. It's all just dark road. There's no lighting, anything. You can tell when somebody's coming. But I would hear this whistling again. But it sounds like a woman whistling. And that was the whole thing, which kind of like, well, I can't explain it. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know if maybe some of my neighbors are whistling and they're just trying to scare me or something. But generally, people are in bed by 10, 30, 11. So I don't know. I don't really have a good answer. There was no wind. It was a warm night. I don't have a good answer for it, but I went back in after that and I just locked the doors and like, you know what, I'm just going to sit in tonight and read. Well, that's interesting too, because I mean, women do whistle, but it's more prevalent to hear a man whistling. So that's very interesting. Yeah, I thought that too. I have no good answer for it. That's really the only one. Otherwise, it's just mostly the stories I have been told and I've heard and I like to go around collecting. I'm actually in the future... I would like to actually write a book about the area. Um, I actually would like to write a horror novel or something, actually, what I've been trying to create a script for um, about the region around witchcraft. 
because it's so prevalent that I was really surprised. If you'd like, I can even send pictures of the area where supposedly there's these valleys of the witches and the old churches. They're really unique. They're one of a kind. You won't see them anywhere else but the Balkans. Yeah, that would be great. I know everybody would love to see those. We could include them in the show notes and I can throw them up on Instagram and stuff. That'd be wonderful. Yeah, and I know my community would love to hear that they're being talked about because it's really out of the way. To give you an idea, the capital's in the center of the country, the center-ish of the country. It's about five hours by road because the roads and infrastructure is really, really tough to get to. It's about five hours to get to where I live. And so a lot of people don't go there. And I think it would be really, really cool to show people about more areas of Albania because I talk with a lot of people and Albania is not somewhere people generally know about a lot of or even can find. I would really appreciate that. And I think it's a great idea to write a book because I was just going to say, you should write a book. I actually am. So I'm debating. I've had so some of my closest friends in Albania and in Romania, they've been battling with me. I was like, oh, I should write the book about Romania. Or should I write the book about Albania? And I think that I'm leaning towards Albania, mostly because Romania is always so much written about. Mm-hmm. And there's always horror novels and vampire stories and everything's out of Romania. I think that Albania, you don't think of witches. I didn't think of witchcraft and witches and hexes and curses and the devil possessing people until I got to where I am. So I think it would be really, really neat to try and uh, get that information out there. Yeah, it would definitely be a unique angle. So I would go with that one for sure. I'm trying to get cultural projects out there about Albania. And I think it'd be really cool, especially at because uh, around Halloween time, Halloween isn't celebrated, but there's a lot of cultural festivals and like... Um, it's kind of like a, a mini Oktoberfest, I guess is the closest you can count to it where I am. There's a lot of dancing, traditional dances, people dress up in traditional outfits. But I would love to, I've been trying to get, uh, like with my students, I had them last October write ghost stories. And mm. it was interesting, some of them based on uh, family legends and what they've heard from their own community. So I've been going around and since collecting ghost stories and different legends and lore, and I'm trying to preserve them. Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for suggesting that we look at the legends here in the Balkans and for you coming on and sharing them with us because I'd never heard any of this stuff before. So it was fascinating. You're welcome. Uh, I love talking about the Balkans. I love talking about Albania, Romania. So thank you very much for your time. And I hope everyone enjoys this episode as well. All right. You take care. Thank you. After listening to Chris, it is clear that people living in the Balkan Peninsula are still a very superstitious people. Is there some truth behind these legends? Are there hexes and can the evil eye protect you? What if cemeteries? Should we be careful about pointing at tombstones? How do you feel about these legends? That is for you to decide. This was so fascinating talking to Chris because when he first emailed us and said, hey, how you girls doing? Haven't talked to you in a while and I've got some more legends here in the Balkans, I thought. Well, we talked about vampires before, but maybe he just wants to talk some more about them. But all of these stories he told us, especially Denise going into cemeteries, if you're over there, you got to be very careful because if you're wandering around pointing at tombstones, you're going to be cursed. That's pretty scary. Indeed it is. And on our next episode, we're going to be going across the pond over to Derby. And we're going to talk about haunted Derby. There's a lot of stuff going on in that village. This was suggested to us by our listener, Nellie Johnson. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? 
They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And sometimes we get feedback in other places. Such as our website. We heard from Astrid over there, and she said, First, I love your podcast. Although I haven't listened for a few months, some stuff going on, I have recommended it to several who are now avid listeners. Second, decided to visit the lighthouse in St. Augustine again, though this time with my kids 14 and 16, and I did the Dark of the Moon tour. It was great. Highly recommend it. Someone's EMF reader kept going off, and everyone in our group got excited. During our free time, we went on the trails in the woods, and we also went back into the basement to see if Peter would come out. He didn't, but that's okay. Then she also gave us a suggestion for another location that we already had on our list because I talked to somebody at the Haunted America conference about joining us about this particular location. It's one of those ones that really would fit for October because it's one of the creepier places out there. So looking forward to that. Then we also heard from Allison. Greetings from Anchorage, Alaska. I discovered your podcast just prior to my recent move from Juneau. It certainly made the move and the three-day-long transit on the ferry easier to deal with, especially when we were pitching and rolling in the Gulf of Alaska. Thanks for the wonderful podcast. Denise, the Spooktacular crew has been busy out there doing ghost hunts or getting ready to do ghost hunts. I can't believe we have a lot of spirit tempters. Uh, Yes, we do. But... I really like the part of them getting together and hanging out. Although tempting the spirits, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know. Yeah, Cindy just did an overnight at Waverly Sanatorium. That would be very freaky, and I'm really looking for a completely detailed account from her. She said they had some stuff happen, so I'm looking forward to hearing about it. And then Teresa let us know that she recently attended a public ghost hunt historical tour where the Michigan's Great Trainwreck took place. That's super cool. She said, this is a historic greenhouse conservatory that has been known to harbor quite a few strange occurrences. It's been said that numerous houses had to serve as makeshift morgues due to the amount of people who had perished immediately. This has led to many hauntings being reported in various houses on the land. And Candace is going to be doing a hunt sleepover on Saturday night at Hillview Manor in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Oh, that should be a lot of fun. We, we still need to get up to Pennsylvania, too. Jeez. But I'm sure you're going to be lecturing her about having a hunt sleepover, and I doubt she's going to be doing much sleeping. Nope. But if you're going to tempt, then you don't get to sleep. (laughs) So y'all have fun and remember to tempt bunk, and then you'll know, did it really happen or not? We have a couple of iTunes reviews to share. Our first one is from Chris Coggs. Love this show. Five stars. This show is so wonderful. Diane and Denise tell stories in a way that makes you feel like you're in the room with them. Researching fascinating stories throughout history and haunting still occurring in the modern day. One of my favorite podcasts and one you should be listening to. Well, thank you, Chris. And I believe that is Chris, who is the host of the Mad Scientist podcast. We greatly appreciate that. Our next review comes from over in the UK, Barbara Suffolk. Great podcast, five stars, really interesting, covering so many paranormal areas. Thanks so much, Barbara, for giving us that review. We want to thank you for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.